Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about innovation and equity in health. Well, for us, innovation can mean new biomedical advances, and it can also mean new approaches in the way healthcare is delivered. And in this episode, we are looking at how innovations in healthcare delivery are being explored here at home for us at the Shot in the Arm podcast in California. And that's relevant as the state, the world's fifth largest economy in its own right, has a range of programs and approaches to healthcare serving a rich diversity of different cultures and ethnicities. Now, when you think of healthcare in the US, you think of private sector driven programs. But for California, the public sector accounts for 75% of the state's healthcare funding. So, what's going on? Well, joining me in this episode is Sandra Hernandez, MD, the CEO of the California Healthcare Foundation, an independent, non profit philanthropy working to improve the healthcare system in California so that it works for all Californians, particularly those on low incomes and communities of color who've traditionally faced the highest barriers to care. So, Sandra, welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. Thank you, Ben. So nice to be with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation this morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So uh, California Healthcare Foundation, did I get that right? Anything that you would you would add? You do, You got that right. We are a, a private independent foundation. Uh, we work throughout the state of California and we very much focus on the healthcare delivery system with a, with a real aim at making sure that the folks who have the hardest time accessing it uh, really are able to come into the mainstream of the best innovations that we have in California. So y you do a range of things from policy to, to grant making. You've just launched um, a report of a, of a survey of attitudes of Californians to, to healthcare. Um, what were the key findings that came out of that? Thanks, Ben. Yes, we do. Uh, we do a lot of grant making, but we also do polls and really try to keep a pulse on what people are feeling, what their concerns are, as a way to just help our policymakers stay grounded in addressing the right things. So I, I think I would name a few things. One is affordability is still a major issue for many Californians. Fully half of the folks in this poll had delayed care because of either actual financial impediments or perceived impediments of, of affordability. And so we continue to see that in spite of all the work that we are doing and continue to do, uh, affordability is, is certainly top of mind. And then as you said, we're a very diverse state, geographically, culturally, um, but we also have an enormous problem with homelessness as many uh, other states do and urban centers do. And I think one of the other things we're beginning to see is real understanding that housing and and healthcare and health really are, are one and the same. You, you can't have good health, health outcomes. Uh, you can't be in a medical home if you're uh, unstably housed. And we have a significant problem uh, with, with homelessness in California and people are increasingly making that connection. Uh, we also, you know, in the pandemic, really dramatically uh, increased telehealth uh, and the use of, uh, of telemedicine, televideos, et cetera, as a way to reach people. 
And uh, now more than half of Californians have experienced some form of telehealth or telemedicine. And largely people feel very positive about it. And if you think about low-income families, right, that would make sense because uh, you don't have to take a day off to be able to see a provider or to get your medications refilled or to give an update on a particular illness. And then, of course, you know, equity, which I know we'll talk more about this morning, Ben, uh, you know, that's still very much at play in California. Uh, Black Californians, you know, have a very different experience with healthcare than people who are not uh, uh, Black or African-American. And that's really regardless of their insurance status, their age, or their life. And we've seen this in prior polls as well. Californians really are concerned about behavioral health and mental health in particular during this pandemic when, um, you know, people are under extraordinary stress. Um, we've seen uh, the opiate uh, crisis really uh, at play and really uncontained during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And so behavioral health and mental health are really also top of people's minds. Do you know, it's it's a fascinating survey and you can you can get it through your website and we'll link at it link to it in the show notes but but there's something about it that i think speaks to the challenge and the frustration of california there is so much innovation and opportunity and creativity and i think you referred to it particularly with the the opportunities afforded by telehealth um but there are such challenges and you know and particularly this linkage between homelessness and access to care or or lack of access to care um, you, you talk about how these kind of polls help inform policymakers. Uh, what do you hope that they will take from this? Well, actually, you know, uh, we've seen a lot of responsiveness to this, right? I mean, it's hard for government to uh, to do these kinds of polls because inevitably they end up in some sort of some of, somewhat of a political context. And one of the things that we do as a foundation is we ask the questions and then we release the information so that people can hear direct quotes and the data that comes out of the polling. And of course, one of the things we wanna do is, and CHCF is, is making quite a few investments in this space, is really trying to take an approach to healthcare in California where you look at the entire person, so-called whole person care. And that is really the integration and coordination, the share of data and, and in real time, that allows for a person's entire healthcare uh, needs to be addressed comprehensively and in an integrated and coordinated way. And we think that's super important to really address the mental health issues that we mentioned a moment ago, but also just to recognize that people who have serious mental illness also have coronary artery disease and hypertension and the like. And so that integration coordination of care um, and really integrating both the financing, the delivery system, and the data systems associated with that, we think will significantly improve healthcare outcomes given the expenditures that we have. The other thing that we're doing, and you mentioned this, I mean, so much of healthcare is funded by public sectors. And what we're seeing now in California, which I think is super exciting and very important to do, is our public programs, Medi-Cal, which serves 13 million Californians, almost 14 million, and our uh, ACA exchange, so-called Covered California, and CalPERS, which provides insurance for many of the employees of the state and retirees of the state. Those three public programs have recently come together 
And this had been tried before with a very limited number of indices, but they're now coming together and really naming four metrics that they want all of the delivery systems, hospitals, IPAs, clinics to focus on. Uh, and, you know, th these are very basic things, childhood immunizations, that namely, right? Colorectal screening, right? Super important. Hemoglobin A1C, really the control of diabetes. Uh, and then uh, uh, really managing hypertension. So by focusing on a set number of metrics and the public agencies doing that together, it really does allow the delivery system to focus on a few very important outcomes. And I think that's for a state of 40 million people uh, with people coming in and out of different programs depending on their economic status, et cetera, and their eligibility for those programs. To have those programs more and more aligned, we think is uh, really gonna benefit the folks that are in any one of those programs. Do you know, it sort of reminds me of uh, a remark that our current president made when the Affordable Care Act uh, was was um, was signed by President Obama, um, and I won't use the expletive that that he used, but it is a big deal. Um, and and I wonder the bringing together of these public sector uh, programs um, or, or paying mechanisms, I guess, funding vehicles, um, is is that a step towards single payer, or or, or is it another way of thinking about it? And and I ask this question, Sandra, because in many ways, California is an experiment. It's a Petri dish to see how healthcare can be delivered in the 21st century, given these huge diversities in populations and cultures. So uh, is this an example of, of California leading the way? It is. I, you know, I think you have to take a broad look at the major improvements we've made over time, right? There was Medicare and Medicaid. As you referenced, then there was ACA, and California really was the lead train in ACA, right? right. Broadly expanded the Medicaid program, our Medi-Cal program, uh, stood up arguably the most effective exchange in the country, uh, has done a lot with regard to extending subsidies to make health insurance quite affordable in those programs. And so I think uh, and, and California now has, for the first time, an office of affordability. Uh, which was re recently put in place to address the affordability issues that we mentioned. And the real issue here is that the delivery system behaves the way the financing system does. If you don't integrate and consolidate the financing system, what you end up with is a very fragmented delivery system, which really underperforms all of our expectations and certainly underperforms the financial dollars that we have invested in these programs. So I think that California, by virtue of its size, by virtue of its diversity, um, with these public programs beginning to integrate outcomes, simplify eligibility between programs, we're trying to reduce sort of the friction that exists within the system. And I think that bodes well. I mean, you have young people enrolled in Medi-Cal, and now some of their parents will become eligible for Medi-Cal. So the step towards universal coverage, which we are on a path that exceeds, I think, any state in the country, uh, in a big state, um, you know, we are set to, by 2024, probably have an uninsured rate in California of around 2%. Wow. 
pre-ACA, we were at about 17%. So as you know, you got to get everybody in the tent. And uh, coverage is important, but access and outcomes behind the coverage are equally important. And those are the places where I think the state is likewise really starting to look at the Medi-Cal program and significantly restructure it such that, I mean, it is the largest public program besides Medicare and the VA in the country. Uh, that is the size of the Medi-Cal program. And so the current reform efforts that are underway that the Biden administration has given California uh, the go-ahead to really innovate these programs, that is, I think, the next big incremental piece of improving health outcomes for low-income folks in the state. So it it begs the question, Sandra, and I hope you don't mind my asking this, but a yeah. bit of an idiot's question. How is uh, healthcare policy determined um, in California? Um, you know, as we said at the start, you think of the United States as a, a, a patchwork of essentially private sector-driven programs, and that's clearly an oversimplification. But, but for our listeners and viewers, uh, perhaps outside of the state, outside of the country, how does it work? Who makes decisions in California? Well, it's, uh, it's complicated because um, <laughs> we're, you know, there are 58 counties within the state of California. Uh, you go from very rural counties to Los Angeles County, which is the largest county in the United States. So it uh, it varies dramatically uh, at the at the county level. And in the past, behavioral health was largely and has largely been delivered at the county level. Um, and that actually, you know, during the pandemic, showed itself in its challenges. Um, uh, uh, so the state level certainly has. Uh, a, a role, a massive role, particularly in running the Medi-Cal program. And that program, of course, is, you know, it's funded by the federal government in partnership with the state. Uh, the, the state determines what eligibility uh, with approval by the feds. So really, it's hard for the state to do anything with the Medi-Cal program that does not get federal participation and federal approval, which is why this moment in time, uh, with the Newsom administration working so closely with the Biden administration, we think it is a very important time to take this Medi-Cal program, which is this large public program, and significantly improve its outcomes, integrate care, address some of these issues that we see in the polls around access to care for people who are unsheltered, getting people uh, a case management in a comprehensive way, and really uh, cutting down the fragmentation between mental health, behavioral health, and physical health. So this so-called CalAIM program is an innovative approach, probably the largest in 40 years, at least since I've been doing health policy, uh, to really dramatically improve the outcomes and the care delivery system for these 14 million people enrolled in that program currently. So I, I think this speaks to it. I've heard you say, and I'm just going to quote from this, that we have a short window to maximize the take-up of federal resources flowing into the state, to bake in changes, to provide better access to care, so the state is not vulnerable to a future administration. Can you talk a bit more about that? What is it that we are reinforcing and sort of creating a foundation for here? You know, it's important to note, I mean, 
the California uh, Sacramento uh, uh, position of an administration of Newsom administration and largely controlled Democratic legislature. Uh, and by the way, we implemented ACA under a Republican administration. Uh, so I think that's also important to note. Uh, governor Schwarzenegger was governor when the ACA passed and a lot of the decisions that were made uh, to implement the ACA happened under that administration. And so I do think you see this forward movement at the legislature as well as at the administrative level uh, to begin to address uh, these fundamental problems. You know, we did in San Francisco, Healthy San Francisco, and what we did was we sat at the table with brought in organized labor, we brought in small business, we brought in the chamber, we brought in the hospitals, and we brought in the clinics. And we said, we should be able as a county, for example, to provide com comprehensive access to care at a county level. It was the first time that had ever been done. And I think what's unique about California is the way in which these tables can get set so that you can drive towards a North Star. You can drive towards more affordable care, better access to care, better health outcomes in care, better cultural competency in care. And what you, is so unique about California is the willingness of those all those providers to sit at a table and aim at the same goal. And that's where we are in California. Yes, it's about money, but it's also about understanding what problem we're trying to solve and to doing so right hand, left hand coordinated. Private sector, large public sector role. And you know how important that is to do. I mean, it's both political will, but it's also just about making the stakeholders to pull their oars all in the same direction. That's that's right. It's joining the dots in in many regards, and exactly. and and I think one of the exciting things for California is that, um, you know, you 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 have a range of providers, you have a range of mechanisms of delivery, public, nonprofit, for profit, um, and it's about how they talk together um, and how you can create efficiencies. And I, I I'd love to come back to that in 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 a little bit, but there's something else I wanted to ask you. Um, and I, I, it's something that's much on my mind at the moment. And it is the legacy of AIDS warriors uh, who've worked in the HIV field in the last 20, 30 odd years. Uh, and that includes both you and me. Um, right. and, and I just wondered if you would sort of talk a bit about your background, how you got into this. Um, and then maybe we can talk a bit about how the AIDS experience is now you know, influencing the way healthcare is being delivered. But how did you yeah, get into thank, this? Yeah, thank you for asking. It's a great, great question. I've given that quite a bit of thought. Um, first, you know, I would say that um, we ought to extract uh, lessons from the HIV epidemic. I uh, came to UCSF to do my uh, residency in internal medicine. Uh, in 1984, really in the heart of the uh, HIV epidemic. We were, uh, we did not yet have one antiretroviral that was on the market at the time that uh, I came to San Francisco. And um, you, you remember those days, right? Uh, we, we lost many, many, many people 
to the HIV epidemic when we had no effective treatment. I, I actually lost a brother uh, to to HIV, and and I trained at San Francisco General Hospital, where uh, you know we developed this uh, HIV AIDS model of care. And there, there are certain tenets that I think are so important from that experience that are relevant, not just to the pandemic, but to healthcare in general. And one of those is, you know, we had such tremendous AIDS activists. I mean, people who really stepped in with a voice, pushed on the FDA for uh, drug trials, uh, and really centered patients at the middle of decision-making, policy-making, design of care, a prioritization of care. We relied on community health workers. Today, we're talking about expanding team-based care to add health workers, trusted messengers in the community, uh, clinical trials in the community. Um, and so I think there were many extractions from that uh, time that are relevant today. And by the way, you know, it's interesting that we've not eradicated HIV, right? And today, uh, you know, HIV uh, infections are largely in low-income people of color communities. Uh, and by the way, we, we did a lot of public health actions, which I also think about today as my public health colleagues get berated for making recommendations that really save lives. Um, but we did a lot of things in those days. We did needle exchange, for example. We really prevented a whole population of, of injection users um, from getting HIV. But the residual transmission of HIV still goes on in low-income people of color communities. And what we should make sure doesn't happen is that we let COVID simmer in low-income people of color communities. I mean, we should learn from the HIV experience to make sure that that does not happen as we move from a pandemic to endemic phase of COVID-19. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and Sandra, let me just dive in. There is, you mentioned community health workers. Now, we've just been working with the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB and malaria, looking at the way in which community health workers in, in this case, in a rural county in Kenya, have played a central role, particularly during COVID, in making sure that young people with HIV are still accessing their medicines. And in fact, these community health workers are delivering the medicines uh, to people's homes. And it seems to me that there is a, um, a very interesting conversation, a sharing of expertise between North and South that needs to take place here. And I, I, I've wonder what you think about this that there is a there is a um there are lessons to be learned all over the place and that in a setting like or a set of settings like california um and you know we've been working very closely in profiling for example calpep in oakland which has really tried to connect uh, marginalized people of color to to hiv services but, but really to understand those linkages. Um, and, and I wonder what you feel about that. Well, look, um, it works, right? We know that community health workers, people who are from the community, who are have speak the same language, uh, who know one another, trust one another, 
they have been instrumental in California with COVID, uh, getting people convinced to get vaccinated, uh, getting people uh, uh, tested for COVID. Um, and in fact, as we've talked about the Medi-Cal program, there's an enormous effort to significantly expand the workforce uh, at all levels uh, in order to meet the kinds of needs that we need and uh, that, that we have and to make sure that people, when they access a healthcare system, see themselves in it. And I think, you know, what we've learned from HIV, we've We've exported globally, uh, and and it's done. Have, we've done well with that. We've done well with tuberculosis control, for example. Uh, and so I think what's what's happening now is we're remembering those things that work that we've sent globally and bringing them back. How do we reach farm workers in California? We have yes. a large agricultural workforce. Um, they're they're not uh, generally speaking well insured. They're very low income. How do we reach those populations? And so I think we're we're remembering back and pulling back the very global lessons that we sent out to say, hey, there's a better way to deliver care, uh, and really to have everybody at their license to work at the top of their license, right? Uh, not everything needs to be managed by a physician or by a specialist, uh, and I think increasingly. We need to recognize that we have assets of people and talent and trust that we need to deploy at a very community-based level as we're doing globally, uh, as you said, in managing uh, TB, HIV, et cetera. And there's one other element of a sort of a community-driven healthcare model. Um, federally qualified health centers, healthcare centers, FQHCs, um, and we're very close to the San Francisco Community Health Center, which has done extraordinary work, you know, street outreach, street medicine, outreach laboratory work. And, and I just wondered, how do you see um, models of FQHCs applying in this new era of um, healthcare delivery in California? Not, not just, by the way, in urban settings. It's very interesting to see how FQHCs are, are working with um, uh, marginalized populations working in um, the state's agriculture industry, for example. Okay, so FQHCs are absolutely incredibly central to all primary care that we deliver in the Medi-Cal program in particular. And before the ACA, the FQHCs were providing this care. Uh, so, and you're right, they're both in urban centers, but also super importantly, in rural areas. And when COVID-19 uh, happened, they simply flipped a switch and went immediately into testing, into community education, into outreach, and then once vaccines were available, into distributing vaccines. And so they are the engine. They really are primary care engine. Uh, living and working in communities, their board of directors, require that half of their board of directors are actually pa uh, patients of the clinics themselves. And I think this administration, both federal and state, really understand the importance of our federally qualified health centers as an engine of healthcare delivery that is as community-based really as we have in this country. 
So it sort of works in terms of that universal healthcare, and, and, and you described that earlier on, both both primary care, but you know, making sure people have access to diagnostics so they can manage some of the non-communicable diseases, particularly diabetes and, and, and heart disease. But but here's a question I had had for you, and it's sort of where it's sort of the rub here. These interventions work in. Um, you know, in 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 settings where there isn't a lot of money, where access to care is 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 perhaps limited. Um, but what happens when you have innovations that are coming down the pike? Let's say in cancer, in immunology, where these interventions are much more expensive and do require a degree of um, you know centralized um, healthcare delivery, whether it's clinical services or laboratory services. How do we connect? Um, low-income and um, marginalised people of colour into those kinds of services and access those kind of fruits of innovation? So California Healthcare Foundation, we run an innovation fund that focuses on just what you said. That is to say, we look for companies that are delivering services or capabilities that have been proven in a private market and ask ourselves, can it be delivered in the Medi-Cal market? And we make modest investments in these companies that we've assessed as being able to be scalable and that the delivery system, the federally qualified health centers, the public hospitals are interested in those innovations. Because what you have often is innovators and entrepreneurs that are trying to solve problems they don't really know the complexity of how Medicare is financed or who the providers are or who do you meet with if you want to interject that at Dignity Health or if you want to interject that at uh, the county hospitals or if you wanted to have FQHCs as, as part of your, uh, your customer base. And so one of the things we do is we make these modest investments in these companies, but what we're really trying to do is connect those innovations to the Medi-Cal population to be able to make them scalable. And just as you said, to be able to allow those populations to take advantage of innovations that have been tested in other markets. And uh, we have about 15 companies in our portfolio. They do uh, things like uh, telemedicine for opiate care. Uh, they, uh, they help with uh, you finding specialists. They do a lot of workforce efforts because the workforce in California, especially post-COVID, is an enormous challenge. You have people leaving, retiring, exhausted, and we have an increased demand for access. And so, you know, as you talked about the different sectors, one of the other things we are seeing in California is good investments that the private sector along with the public sector are doing together to try to build the workforce of the future, including our public health workforce. Now, you, you touched earlier on the challenges around mental health. And, you know, as we start to come out of COVID-19, I think one of the, uh, the lights at the end of the tunnel is that we're being more serious um, about how we think about uh, mental health, both in terms of treatment, but but also prevention and awareness. Um, and, and I guess my question for you is, uh, you know, given the range of services, uh, the range of uh, funding vehicles, um, 
is this perhaps a disincentive for people facing mental health challenges? Uh, I mean, you know, we're sort of expecting people who perhaps may be the most ill-equipped to navigate complex healthcare um, healthcare mechanisms to access services. How do we take advantage of this opportunity to really put mental health, you know, right at the forefront of priorities? Well, I think one of the things that's happened during this pandemic is that everybody has experienced some degree of mental stress. And I think there is an element that this will destigmatize mental illness and really promote the wellness capabilities, outdoors, meditation, exercise, right? The things that uh, people have been doing to cope with two years of a pandemic. And so I think the fact that mental health has been so stigmatized, the pandemic in some ways has opened that aperture quite wide. And I think everybody has seen in their children, in their loved ones, in their family members, in their coworkers, the kind of mental stress that COVID-19 provided. And so I think one of the legacies we will have is that people will see mental health as something we should all aspire for. And yes, we have a tremendous uh, pent-up demand. The single most important reason for an adolescent during the pandemic to end up in an emergency room was a psychiatric emergency. Oh. And so California has a very ambitious multi-year children and youth mental health initiative that is focusing on schools it's focusing on teaching young people to identify other young people who might be at risk for self-harm, for example. Um, really looking at what we're doing when we screen for depression, what do we do to make sure people get the treatment they need for their depression, whether that's a reactive one or a chronic uh, condition. And then for people who are seriously mentally ill, really reducing the friction between where they get their mental health services and where they get their physical health services and integrating those. So I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, we have an enormous pent-up demand for mental health services. Uh, and really what's rate limiting is not money. It's people, it's workforce, it's people who are trained to do this. Social workers, uh, you know, uh, family, uh, family caregivers, uh, you know, psychiatric social workers, psychiatric nurse practitioners, psychiatrists, psychologists, we need to expand that workforce quite dramatically in order to meet the needs that we have. But I think the COVID-19 pandemic has opened up an awareness about how important mental health is to well-being. There's, there's one other question in relation to... Um uh, inclusion and equity that I think is is not unique to California, but it is very much front of mind. And that is how we bring the undocumented into into care. Um, and, and, and that is something that has had uh, some unfortunate, some might say political controversies attached to it. But it seems to me that a lesson from COVID-19 is the you know, that truism, none of us are safe until all of us are safe. And so there's both a moral, a public health, but also a strategic rationale for making sure that all of our folks, um, in whatever setting they are, are, are connected into care. Um, 
what do you see as trends in terms of, of, of policy making that's happening in California? Well, California has really decided now uh, that, uh, and we had been on this journey for some time. Uh, we've been covering uh, children who are undocumented in the Medi-Cal program now for several years. Uh, and, uh, and then we expanded that to the age of 26. And now in the governor's proposal, in essence, we will cover the remainder of the uninsured uh, uh, and undocumented population in California. And it's precisely for the reasons you say. Not only is it morally the right thing to do, but um, it's also true that um, if these folks do not have primary care, if they don't have a medical home, if they don't have a place where their care is coordinated, what ends up happening is they end up sicker. We lose economic productivity, and those folks end up in emergency rooms and hospitals. And so we pay for that care anyways. We just pay for it at the back end as opposed to at the front end. And I think people recognize that. Not only is it the right thing for us to do for these individuals, but it's also the right thing to do for the delivery system. And, and then you overlay public health pandemics, and surely COVID-19 will not be the last pandemic. You want people, when we say, go see your physician to get a vaccine or to get advice or to get a treatment, they need to have a physician that they know they can go to to get that. And our data systems for public health and for primary care need to be linked. One of the things that made it so hard early in the pandemic was to see who had gotten what, where, where, where were vaccines being recorded. Um, if you went to a clinic, uh, would the hospital know? If you ended up in an emergency room, would they know that you got a, a vaccine at, at an F, a federally qualified health center? Um, those systems really need to talk to each other, and people need to not stand back when we're in a pandemic or an epidemic or whatever it might be from a public health point of view, but come together. And California, by the way, you know, we've had fires, right, that have devastated areas in California. And what you see happening there is communities come together to help one another. They don't ask them where they were born or, or whether they're documented or whether their sibling is or their child is or their parent is. People come together to help one another. And I think that is sort of the prevailing moral inclination of Californians. And thus, it doesn't surprise me that we're on this path to get everybody covered in universal coverage. And, you know, for me, I've been working at this for, for a long time. And so it is, I think, that moment that we need to capture the lessons that we've learned from the pandemic, from HIV, and really continue the path to universal coverage, and then really get us into a very thoughtfully designed delivery system under that. It's, it's really reassuring, Sandra, to hear you be so optimistic um, in, in, in what are essentially sort of fairly dark, confusing days at the moment. Mm -hmm. But there is one other element of optimism that I think is interesting about California. You know, th this is the home to Silicon Valley. All sorts of things are happening in the way we access information, the way we use information. 
the role of social and digital engagement mechanisms. And I and I know that um, you're the co-chair of the, the Culture and Inclusion and Equity Action Collaborative of the National Academy of, of Medicine. And, and so I, I really wanted to get your sense of how new technologies, how AI can, can sort of help bring um, health innovation to the many, not the few. How do we, how do we harness that? It's a great question. Um, you know, uh, AI does have uh, tremendous potential. Uh, what we have to do is to make sure that the data and information that we are collecting is not embedding cultural bias or racism or stereotypes, right? If you think about the collection of information that we bring into uh, an electronic health record, for example, um, soon people through technologies and capabilities will be able to go right in and see what a doctor wrote. What did they say, right? And it allows us to, um, much as we talked about with the HIV epidemic and those advocates that we had, uh, is to center the patient at the middle of their information. And part of this inclusiveness is to make sure that the range of information there is actionable and accurate and not biased. Because what you don't want is AI to codify racism. Right. Right. We really need to make sure that in the collection of that data and the utility, because AI has so much promise, uh, we need to make sure that the information that's in there is valid and unbiased and, and, and that um, the stereotypes that all of us carry, right? I mean, there's work that all of us in the delivery system need to do. Uh, to really understand our own biases and make sure that information that gets put in these systems and then pulled up through AI actually serves the benefit of people who have historically not benefited from the way our data is collected and used. Yeah, absolutely. And and in, in ways that are helpful and useful to them rather than being stuck in the system. Um, exactly. Just as a just as a sort of slightly facetious note, um, I, I I can remember uh, a colleague um, in the healthcare system in the United Kingdom saying how grateful she was that um, you know electronic records were being uh, created now because it meant that patients would be able to read what she had written, given that her handwriting was so poor and she couldn't recognise what she'd actually written. So you know there. <laughs> Well, you know, it's a funny thing because when I was director of health for the city and county was the first time we spent, and at the time seemed like an inordinate amount of money, to create an electronic health record system for our hospital and clinics. It was $40 million, which really the Board of Supervisors thought was, you know, an outrageous amount of money. But at the time, you had laboratory data in one place and clinical data over here and emergency data over there and primary care data. And, and now we have these very sophisticated electronic health records. What we don't have is interoperability right. between those systems. So again, California is leading that. There is a commission that the governor set up. It's a stakeholder group that I serve on. And really what we're trying to do there is say, how do we bring interoperability together such that it benefits patients? 
and that it reduces cost and redundancy and tests that you reorder because you can't get the lab results of whatever happened over there. So another key pillar, I think of the pillars that California is building. Workforce, super important, super important. Data infrastructure, interoperability of that data. And then really just focusing on health equity. Yeah. All of our delivery system is hungry for the tools to dismantle racism and implicit bias that has been built in over years and years. I remember the very first time as a young resident, I saw how policies could be so racist and so punitive to people. And those policies have been built over years and years and years and dismantling those is so important for us to do. And so at this moment of time in society and an awareness of how racism plays itself out, um, health equity is at the center of all of that work, the work that we're doing at the National Academy of Medicine the work that we're doing in California on universal coverage, the work for the delivery systems to really have their workforce be trained in a way that understands inclusiveness, cultural diversity, language and access needs. These are all component parts of this movement that we're seeing in California. And as you said, we're an incredibly diverse state. So we're bold and our appetite is big, for all of these efforts that are underway. You know, it, it strikes me, Sandra, that there is there is so much that we have had to unpack in this very brief Cook's tour of, of what is happening in California and what the challenges are. Um, I, I hope we can come back to you um, um, in the future and see what you're, uh, what you're up to um, and, and, and where these um, advances in 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 policy as well as technology, are driving some of the the key questions about equity um, uh, in healthcare delivery. There's there is so much. I think such a rich conversation here. Well, thank you for having me. There's lots to talk about. I remain a deep optimist and happy to chat with you anytime to tell you how these many tools of innovation are at work in California. Oh, well, well, fantastic. Well, as we wrap up the, the podcast, and we, um, I, I have learned to my, uh, to my chagrin not to ask what your favourite Pet Shop Boys song is, because um, I think that's a very British cultural thing. Uh, that's part of my immigration history. But um, uh, one of the things that we love to ask guests is, you know, during this period, and now we're sort of coming out, hopefully, fingers crossed, out of the, 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 the pandemic and into the endemic phase of COVID-19. But what has kept you sane, whether it's clips that you've seen on Instagram or TikTok, or whether it's books that you've read or series um, on Netflix that you've binged watched, uh, what has kept you sane in this period? Well, I don't binge watch, I'll just tell you that. But uh, I live with two artists. My wife is an artist. My daughter is a musician. And so music and art and uh, really, you know, my daughter's 21. So she comes home and says, have you heard this? Uh, she writes lyrics. She sings songs. And that really does keep me in, by the way, kept her sane during the pandemic. Um, but I think the arts and the expression that people have of hope 
and capability. Uh, you know, we, we perched a start during the pandemic, things that inspired us and that gave us hope. And so uh, I live with two artists. I'm a deep, deep left brainer. And so nature, gardening, music, and art uh, have really kept me. Uh, and, you know, I, I have a very privileged role uh, to be able to deploy public resources uh, from a foundation with 65 incredibly dedicated folks and really trying to create change every day. Uh, yeah, what more could you ask for? It's been, it's been, you know, challenging and yet incredibly rewarding. Oh, well, Sandra, thank you very much for giving us some time in this episode to describe uh, the challenges and opportunities in healthcare that California, California has. You are a shot in the arm. Thank you. Nice talking with you today. Be well. And you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Sandra Hernandez from the California Healthcare Foundation. Thanks to Eric Espera of NewsDoc Media, our director and producer. Thanks also to Troy Espera, our digital producer. Now, this episode is devoted to the memory of Rekha Bart, an immigrant to the United States who spent a career in healthcare medical record systems. And she was mum to a friend of a Shot in the Arm podcast, the global health development leader, Pavi Bart. Pavi was sending you and your family much love at this time. A Shot in the Arm podcast is a project of the Icana Health Action Lab. Have a great week and a safe week, everyone.